0: Welcome to Grizz Great's The Coaching Tree Podcast, Episode 5. Ryan Tutell here alongside Colton Nuanez, as always. And this episode, Colter featuring Don Holst. Don Holst was the head coach at the University of Montana for four seasons, from 1998 through 2002, during that time, Dahlberg Arena went through a major remodel, reconstruction. I mean, they gutted the whole thing and and basically started from scratch on the interior. So And so in Hull's first season, they, the Grizzlies weren't even playing in Dahlberg. They played at Sentinel High School. Uh, it was a very tough year. They did not have a very good record that season. And there's a lot of things, I think, working against uh, Dawn in that season. But over the course of the four years... They steadily got better, and in his final season, the Grizzlies actually won the Big Sky Conference Tournament and went to the NC2A tournament. And that is why how it ended for Coach Holst is such a interesting saga. He is the only head coach in the University of Montana men's head basketball coach coaching tree to have been fired, not renewed, let go ever you want to talk about it. And this happened after a season in which the Grizzlies went to the NC two A tournament, and I thought Coach Holst again tremendous credit to him. He was very candid about that, and uh, and was hurt by that, and reasonably so. And I think there's you know there's always two sides to a story, if not more. Uh, but from his perspective, he wasn't expecting it, and didn't think that he, he deserved to not be back as the head coach of the University of Montana. And yet, in his four seasons, that's and yet that's what he had was a four season run.
1: This interview was particularly interesting because it's not just as cut and dry as the Grizz going 57-56 and 56 under Don Holst. It wasn't just as cut and dry as a 7-7 and finish in the Big Sky Conference that was a tie for fourth place before they won the conference tournament. A lot of different things that went into it. I think that the late 90s was when we first started to see the turn in college athletics in terms of athletic directors wanting to hire their own coaches. And that's been the case now across the country at a lot of different places. It really doesn't matter how good you are. Expectations are incredibly elevated if you are not If you are a head coach in a revenue sport working for an athletic director that didn't hire you. It raises the bar because they want to put their guy in place so you can have cohesiveness. And I think that there was a lot of overturn in the athletic director position at Montana. And I think that Wayne Hogan wanted to go a different direction. But there's also all sorts of other details in terms of the way the Big Sky Conference had changed during the 90s up until Don Holst was hired, what it was like coming on the heels of a guy like Blaine Taylor who left abruptly after uh, yeah, just two years removed from going to the NCAA tournament and went to be Mike Montgomery's head assistant at Stanford, and then you talk about the renovation at Dahlberg Arena, and also the fact that Don Holst is uh, he's a no-nonsense sort of stubborn guy. I mean, I remember when all of this went down. Don Holst was given the opportunity to resign, and he said, no way. I'm not resigning, I just went to the NCAA tournament. And they said, well, then we're not going to renew your contract, and he, he fought it, and I think that he deserves a ton of credit for holding true to what he thought of his own accomplishments as well as sticking around Missoula, mainly for his family. And He talks a lot about that element too, but I think it's a cool story because I think he was bitter for a long time, and now I think it seems he's come full circle and he's very proud of his affiliation as part of this great lineage.
0: I don't want to go too far off the beaten trail here, Coulter, but it's also worth noting, isn't it, that the University of Montana had just recently won their first national championship in football when he came on board and then won their second one in his second to last season, actually going into, I guess, what was his final season. And you talked about the shift in basketball, the shift in sort of athletic directors wanting their own guy. This also probably is the corner at which the shift came where, what had always been a basketball school and basketball conference became more of a football conference. Yep. And I don't know how much that played into this and what actually transpired, but this is certainly uh, a culture shift, a sports culture shift happening in the city of Missoula, in western Montana, and, and maybe, maybe even more broadly in areas of the United States at large right here in his tenure. As
1: we've displayed to everybody that's been listening to this podcast, and if you missed anything, please go check it out. Please go subscribe. Grizz Greats, it's a great history lesson starting in the mid-1970s all the way up th- until now where we are here, the turn of the 21st century. But Judd Heathcote laid the foundation. Jim Brandenburg and Mike Montgomery and Stu Morrill took the next step. Blaine Taylor had it rolling. But then Don Holson, Pat Kennedy, that's the the most interesting part of this to me because it was the one moment where – you could say that University of Montana was losing some traction and part of that is like you said shifting into becoming a football school but i think that all roads lead to this end game which then resulted in Pat Kennedy dipping after 2 years Larry Kostoviak coming back basically to save his alma mater and the rest is history Montana has been the dominant program in the Big Sky conference and that's including Weber State over the last 15 years and i think that sometimes you have to have the dips to have the rise. And I think that Holst doesn't get enough credit for a lot of the adversity he dealt with, and I think he'll tell you a lot about why that was in this episode.
0: Here's the Greats to Coaching Tree podcast is brought to us by our friends over at Berkshire Hathaway, Coulter.
1: Berkshire Hathaway prides itself on providing the community of Western Montana with full-time real estate professionals who are here to help you whenever you need them, and the Brian team is a leader in the industry. Mike Bryan of the Bryan team has been a real estate broker in Missoula for more than 20 years, and he's followed the Grizz for more than 50 years. He's a fierce supporter of of University of Montana men's basketball. It delights him that right now the Grizz are making another run to the NCAA tournament under Travis Takir. Mike Bryan is a member of the Grizzly Roundball Ball Club, and he still plays basketball twice a week. He wants to remind Coach Takir, in case he's listening, he's on the short list. He still has one year of eligibility remaining. Oh, boy. So if you need any help selling or buying commercial or residential real estate, you can give Mike a call. But if you also need some help with your pick-up hoops team, Or if you're Travis DeKirin and you want to get a hold of a stud hoops player who knows all about University of Montana men's basketball, Mike Bryan, you can give him a call at Berkshire Hathaway.
0: Hell of a screen setter.
1: (laughs) Mike Bryan and the Bryan team taking care of all of your real estate needs around Western Montana. You can reach Mike at 406-370-8734. That's 406-370-8734. Mike Bryan and the Bryan team at Berkshire Hathaway, your local real estate experts.
0: Thanks for joining us once again on the Grizz Greats Coaching Tree podcast, please enjoy Episode 5 in our conversation with Don Holst. Well, welcome to another episode of Grizz Greats, the Montana men's basketball coaching tree, and we are happy to be joined with a man who is an 11-year assistant coach at the University of Montana and then a head coach for four years from 1998 through 2002, Don Holst. Don, thank you so much for being with us. How are you?
2: Very good, and thank you for having me on.
0: Well, we're certainly happy to have you on, and we're going to spend, obviously, a lot of time talking about your time at the University of Montana in multiple capacities. But let's go back even before that. You played basketball in Plentywood, and you were a high school coach at a number of different places, girls, boys, junior high, all the way through. I mean, you've been in basketball For a long time, even before you ended up on Stu Morrill's staff at the University of Montana, what was basketball like at the time that you were maybe playing in high school and then coaching it at the the high school and junior high levels after that?
2: You made me laugh a little bit. Most people don't know that I have coached every level and both genders. So, you know, that all gives you a perspective that's a little different if you were just narrowed in on just boys or, or girls. You know, Robin Selvig was a former Lady Grizz coach. He and I actually played Legion baseball together, played basketball against each other when I was in high school. And, you know, that particular area had some really good basketball teams and coaches and, and tradition, you know, and you get hooked on it and you kind of know when you're getting out of high school, I'm going gonna, gonna to want to coach. And my coach made a big difference in my life. And so you wanted to, to go into coaching. And so that's kind of how I got started in coaching.
1: People forget now because the women's basketball has risen to such a high level, especially in the state of Montana with the Lady Grizz and all their success under Robin Selvig. But what was that portion of basketball like when the game grew and, and girls began to start playing it? Because you go back at least to kind of the, the, the brink of that. How did that change the game? How did that influence just the way people thought about the game?
2: Well, I feel sorry for the girls that didn't get the opportunity that were in pep club. They were cheerleaders. They were in band. I mean, they never get to participate in athletics. Then, when I was in college, that came about. Uh, of course, I got an opportunity to coach the college girls at Northern Montana College, get a little coaching experience. And they weren't as skilled. You know, they probably played a couple of years of organized basketball. So it was right at the beginning of it. And every year, it's grown and gotten better. And and you know, with Title IX, all of that has just been such a positive for basketball in general. And I know Robin was up there as a basketball coach in Plentywood, Montana, assistant coach, and he was going to coach the boys. And the coach decided not to retire, and uh, the job opened at Montana. He applied for it, and got it, and the rest is history. If he hadn't left him, who knows what it would have been like at the University of Montana. But the game has really changed. You know, They're a little quicker. They're much more skilled and knowledgeable. They're playing at the same time as the boys in terms of when they start. It's just a positive deal.
1: You have such an interesting career because of the way that it paralleled several different things. And when you got to the University of Montana where the head coach... That was when football really hit a fever pitch as well, but Montana, I think people forget because football has become so big over the last 30 years, was a basketball state, and the Grizz were kind of the the leaders of that pack, and that matriculated into the high school ranks too. What do you remember just about high school basketball during that time, the talent in the state, and just how big of a deal was basketball in Montana around 1970s, 1980s?
2: Well, I think it's the same as it is today. I often have a son who's 19 years old, and playing prep school right now, and, and you think, you know, he's a good player. I tell him, I said, there were some great players back when I was playing. I'm not talking about myself necessarily, guys who were Division One that were either 6'11 or very, very skilled. I don't you know, think that's changed. I think there are more kids that can play a little more athletic. They have the ability to maybe get a trainer, to get more athletic. It's different in that respect. But it's always been a hotbed, Montana, for basketball. And, and the University of Montana was very good from the time uh, the old godfather, Jud Heathcote, took over the reins, and, and he set the ball in motion. He really did. And everybody wanted to be a part of that, and, and they wanted to learn from, as I was a high school coach, I had no idea I'd ever coach in college. In fact, I was asked to um, come on board when Stu moral. It was the first year he was a head coach, and they'd seen me work camp and be around him, and so forth. And I had a really good little basketball program going on. And I said, "I appreciate it. And I, I just really like what I'm doing right now, and and I appreciate the offer. You know, it's going to be a, a grad assistant. And then after a year, another person moved on uh, on the Grizzly staff, and they called me again. I said, "They're going to call me three times." I've done about what I need here, and I need to just try this. Take a shot at it. Uh, it's going to be a little sacrifice, and and I look back and I thought, that was a great decision. It was a hard decision to give up a job at the high school level that you were tenured as a teacher, you had a good program, and go on board as, as the rookie coach, even though you were, you were in your 30s.
0: Flesh that out a little bit for us, Coach, because – Stu Morrill coming in he's been in you know college basketball world and not even in Montana per se for quite a long time. So was it just at like the camps where they saw you bringing kids in and working with them that that you were seen, or what was the connection there where they they originally asked you and then persisted in asking you?
2: You might get invited to their camp in those days, you know they sent out a letter and I mean, they had so many guys wanting high school coaches wanting to work the Grizzly Cage camp in the summer. And I had the opportunity, and you jump in there, you get after it, and you coach teams, and you you know you do all the things you're supposed to do, and you get to know those coaches as you're interacting and engaging. And I you know did that for about five summers, and then the opportunity came. You know, I suppose Blaine Taylor said, what about him? You know, But we we knew each other by that time. They had a good feel for me. They weren't going to go interview a bunch of guys and, and bring them in. He, he wanted a guy he knew, I'm sure of that. And I had a chance to go back and work with Stu after my time at Montana. I I wasn't coaching for about three years. He came into town and did a a banquet and asked, I got an assistant's job opened up this year. Are you you interested in doing that? And I always loved working for Stu. And so that was quite a commitment as well. You know, I uprooted myself and, and went to Utah State. I did that for one year. And I had a five-year-old son, and I saw him about mm, probably a week and a half total the whole year, and it wasn't going to get any better. And I had an opportunity to come back to Missoula, and I thought, well, that's it. I'm done coaching. You know, I'm not going to coach again. And uh, and you kind of reinvent yourself. If you're going to live in Missoula, Montana, and you're not doing what you probably love to do for about 30 years, You get into another area, whether it's business or education, and I'm, you know, now I'm a, I've been a principal for about nine years.
3: Who do businesses throughout the Pacific Northwest turn to for innovative internet and voice solutions? Blackfoot, our cybersecurity, network uptime, ergo, and SD-WAN solutions ensure your organization is online all the time. Learn how Blackfoot can enable your business to move forward. Call 406-541-5000 or visit goblackfoot.com slash grizzgreats. Blackfoot, connect to more.
0: What
1: was it like going from coaching high school basketball to coaching in college?
3: Well, you know, I
2: had about 10 years experience as a head coach, and, you know, that's okay. That's not why they hire you. You start at the bottom, and you do every job no one else wants to do on staff to start with, and that's everything from you might be helping the study hall guy two or three times a week and get the guys in there in the evenings for study hall and help them academically to direct them the right classes, film exchange, all the stuff. I remember Stu saying, The more you get done, the more you get. As you prove yourself you did that okay and and you kinda and that's kind of the way you work your way through it. They weren't worried about what I knew. If you got to add something in a meeting or two and, and it was something that they actually could use, well that's good. But as you went year by year, you kind of vested your Ability by what you've proven on staff at whatever your job description was. When you become the head coach, finally, you've done everything from the bottom up. So you know everybody's job and you know if they're doing it correctly. What do you
0: remember about Stu Morrill?
2: Well, he's an ultimate professional and he's a workaholic. I'm so glad that he did finally retire. I was afraid he was going to die on the job. I mean that sincerely, too. It's hard to be healthy in that profession. I'm sure football coaches agree. Different sports, same game in a way. The hours you put in, the stress you put on yourself. He didn't take that stress out on anyone, but he was always experiencing that. When he had a list, and went through your list of meetings, you better have your work done, you know, whatever that might be, whatever it's recruiting or scheduling or whatever, because he's going to call you on it. So that's something you better be on top of as an assistant. He listened. He was a good listener. You might come in, and you might be the third guy, and if you had something smart to say and it made sense to him, he'd use it. How
1: about the league at that point in time? What do you remember about the Big Sky Conference?
2: I don't want to degrade the league in any way. It's bigger now, but but the schools have changed. Idaho's back in now, but they were really good back then, and, and Reno was really good, and Boise State, and there's three right there that weren't in the league. Now, Idaho's been been added. There were no easy teams to play, and I'm not saying there are now. The teams that came in afterwards that weren't in the big sky had brought their programs to the level that they needed to. There were some great teams that came out of those three schools, and we were always right in there with them.
0: When Stu Morrill moves on and Blaine Taylor takes over, what was the experience like then? I mean, I guess you assume maybe that you would be able to stay with Blaine Taylor, but obviously now with you know when he becomes the head coach, it's kind of his show and he gets to make those decisions. So what was that transition like?
2: When it happened, Stu asked me if I wanted to go to Colorado State with him. He said, I know what you're going to say. And I said, but I'm going to ask you anyway. And he said, well, Coach, I've got a 10-year-old daughter here. And, you know, I just really wanted to stay in Missoula and be a coach on board. And that's how why I chose that. It was uh, because of her. They're two different people, but we're kind of of the same cloth in many ways. Blaine was right there with to step after step. And so their philosophy was very similar. And so it was not a big jump for Blaine to just step in there. I mean, he was like an associate head coach at the time, and I'm right there with him. It was an easy transition, and we were really good. We had a really good team. Stu left maybe one of the best teams we've had at the University of Montana, and we won the conference, won won the tournament. So it it all played out well, and, and he won some other championships while he was the head coach as well.
0: Talk about that team or those teams, particularly the last year that Stu Morrill was there, and then the first year Blaine Taylor is being the head coach, because those teams both finished first in conference and won the tournament and went to the NC2A tournament.
2: They were a group of kids that a mix of Montana guys, out of state kids, all bringing different talents to the floor, but at the same time, they really liked each other. They really shared. They were tenacious on defense. We had a shot blocker that was the best shot blocker we've had probably two years in a row. That doesn't hurt to have that inside. And we had guys in the perimeter that would get after him defensively. But they really shared the ball. They knew what each other what they could do. Delvon Anderson was the MVP his senior year. Arguably the best three we've ever had. And Roger Fassing at the 2 at 6'5", good jumper passer. And Darren England was the shot blocker. You know, and he's from Geraldine, Montana, the bitty town, probably had 20 kids in his class. It was a real unique mix, mixture. I'm just so fortunate to have been able to be there for both those years.
1: Devon Anderson is a name that has come up throughout the years because of how great of a player he was, and then because of his tragic and way too early passing a couple of years back. But I know Travis DeCure remembers him with great reverence, and and so so does Blaine Taylor. How do you remember Delvon Anderson?
2: Yeah, I like to hang around him. We'd be in the airport, and I'd kind of hang out a little bit. He was such a natural leader. He didn't try to lead. He just did. And he was funny, really a funny person. And the kids loved hanging out around him. But when the ball went up, boy, there was nobody tenacious. as he, He would just bite you for a rebound or a loose ball. I remember when they were recruiting him, what does he do? We're in the office. Is he a good shooter? He says, yeah, he can shoot it. Does he dunk it? Yeah, he can dunk it. They're saying, what do you hang your hat on? He was just a heck of a basketball player and a competitor that I just like went, wow, during games. He would do stuff. And it wasn't Michael Jordan stuff. It was just tough play, you know. And his teammates loved him. He gave as much as he took. And he was really the catalyst of that group. He never selfish.
0: Don, you're seven years an assistant with Blaine Taylor uh, there at the University of Montana. And Blaine is, I mean, anybody that's ever talked to Blaine Taylor, I mean, thinks that he should probably be president 10 seconds into the conversation. <laughs> you know, he's hes the funniest, most, you know, outgoing guy and all that. But what was he like as much as he was the same philosophically maybe as Stu was? A little different personality type and, and still a different person. Blaine is
2: uh, unique. He's a little bit of a gambler. He'd gamble on certain things that, that might be a play or maybe a certain lineup. or, But they were they were similar. I mean, their, their personalities are different, obviously. Blame some of the funniest guys you've ever been around, as you're an assistant, you have your responsibilities and so forth, and you figure, okay, well, am I the next guy in line, right? And if you are, you better be prepared, and you better be taking good notes mentally both Stu and Blaine. I had 10 years of high school coaching under my belt as a head coach, but it's nothing like when you get to the, the college level, the preparation, and I can remember the first years as head coach, and I felt like I was getting ready to be in a fist fight every game on edge. It's uh, magnified by the crowd, by the press, by the importance of, of the game. You better be ready to step in the fire and not get burned. I can remember thinking, you know, the last couple years, I knew Blaine was looking. He was involved in the Oregon job, and, and then at the end, he ended up going to Stanford, but, you know, thinking that when that day comes, you better be ready to put on the cloak and deliver.
1: That element of this whole thing is so fascinating to me, because it's sort of commonplace, because it's been such the entrenched history of University of Montana men's basketball over the last 40 or 50 years, is that there seems to always be a next guy in line, and the next guy in line seems to always get the chance, and that's not the case at so many other schools. So why do you think that is? And, and when you are kind of working your way up and you might be that next guy like you were just talking about, I mean, that must be an interesting feeling. How much of that influences the way that you went about your day-to-day, and why do you think it is that people at Montana, it seems to be the next guy in line does get a better chance than a lot of different schools?
2: Well, I think because early on, before I ever joined, when I said the brotherhood, when we were high school coaches, we used to joke about that, you know, they were tight. And when I finally came on board and realized how that all worked, and I think that the head coach grooms the next guy a little bit, and they show loyalty, they have each other's back. And then when it works, when that coach wins program continues and i think people like stability not just change for the sake of change i was unfortunate to finish my career you know i didn't see that one coming really i think that we were lucky that we had a little speed bump that we had after me two guys that i hired My first hire, I was going to retain two guys, but I I looked and I found Crisco because Crisco wasn't doing anything. He was in Seattle and he was done playing. And I said, would you be interested in being an assistant coach for me? And I'd known Crisco for enough years to like and trust and knew what he would bring to the staff. Then after him, you know, he was there for two years. Then Wayne Tinkle, my last year, I've always liked those two guys. I always thought they were hard workers. You're hiring people that you feel to be the next coach and that you know they've got your back because a lot of stuff happens during the course of a season. You really got to know who's there for you during the tough times because there's always going to be a tough time or two.
1: You just missed Coach Larry Kostoviak right, when he was a player?
2: He was playing. I was a high school coach. I'll watch him play. He was one of my favorites. Hard worker, blue-collar guy, tougher nail, smart. When he came on board my staff, I mean, he was the first guy in the, in the office. I'm just going to tell you, every morning, he's an early bird. But he, he wasn't going to be the last guy because he was really, I mean, he was there early. So we, we knew we needed to utilize him before 5 o'clock. Because he gets a little tired of 5.30, uh, he wasn't going to stay up all night and watch film unless we were on the road. And I might stay late. He brought that work ethic to our kids, our post play. I and mean, then here I've got two guys that know how to play the post and both those guys or teaching our kids to get better in that position. I think that's crucial in the game. It was great to have Larry, and when he came back on as the head coach after Kennedy, he had a poster that he had all of the guys on it, me included, to honor that kind of brotherhood that was out there. He had pictures of the guys, you know, and, and that was his first poster that he made. It was pretty neat, really.
1: Wayne Tickle, what do you remember about him as a player?
2: Well, I always kid him because that's my first two years as an assistant, Wayne's junior and senior year. I always had to go get him a Mountain Dew. He liked to have a Mountain Dew before the game. And he liked to have that before he goes down to warm up. I said, I got it. I'll go get it. <laughs> set him up with a Mountain Dew, you know. and You uh, <laughs> have to tease him about that. And, you know, he uh, has this great, warm personality. He put his arm around me when I was the head coach, and I am looking up at him. You know, he's about 6'11", foot. He's just such a very warm person and very loyal. He worked really hard to get where he's at. Both those guys, I told them at the roast, I said, I hired both of you. Now you guys are making millions of dollars. Where is the finder's fee?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I want to ask you about those guys as assistant coaches as well beyond just being players but before we get to that I just want to ask about the moment that you became the head coach when you talk about Blaine kind of decides that he needs a change of scene a change of venue and you're kind of next man up but until it happens it doesn't happen I mean until it's real you maybe don't know for sure and then you become the head coach what was that like in that kind of moment where you go okay it's my show
2: well, and and it wasn't a clean-cut deal because of the AD, you know, I wasn't his guy. And so they made me the interim head coach my first year. You know, you're the head coach, but you're the interim. We're not quite sure we want you yet. or It's not a we, it's a he. And so you enter with that stigma, at least I did, and then we're re- we, modeling our arena so we played in sentinel high school and we got to practice one day a week there and you can imagine how tough that was to play at sentinel high school at the end of it all people knew that i'd had an interim tag placed on me and they came out and really packed the gym the last game and had signs we want don you know stuff like that was nice but you're still not sure you're going to be retained for the next year. And then they, they retain me. And then the next year we're back in our facility and we're picked seventh and, and we win the league, which was one of my favorite teams. And they bore up when we were at Sentinel High School. Those kids took their lumps and bumps. And the next year, I mean, they just bought in. All of a sudden, now you're earning your credibility and you're moving forward. But, yeah, you're you're not sure. You know, and and you're ready for it. That's why you did this.
1: Grizz Greats presented in part by Stockman's Bar. Stockman's Bar, a favorite local institution of Missoula. Great article in the local newspaper earlier today about the most affordable drinks in the city of Missoula. And the picture was our good friends Mike and Donnie Larson, the owners of Stockman's Bar. No
0: surprise there. That's not
1: false advertising. It is the cheapest beers that I have found in the city of Missoula. It is $3 from open until closed. There is no happy hour. There is no specials. It's $3 draft beers. They have not just domestics. They have all your favorite crafts. They got the cold smoke. They got the hay bag half. They got it all. And if you get some Dobie's Teriyaki right inside Stockman's Bar, it's $2. You're not going to find a cheaper beer anywhere in
0: town. Stockman's is amazing, man, because they have invented and reinvented themselves uh, over the course of time. You know, repeatedly and even over the course of a given day, you know, you go in there during the day, you can sit down, play some cards, have a nice conversation, bend at the elbow for a little while on some cold and uh, inexpensive beers. And a little later on, you can get yourself some food. Then they get the music cranked up. You can go in there and have yourself a real proper downtown party. Obviously, they got the poker table in there. You can still sit down and play at from time to time. It's remarkable how many different ways you could interact with the same establishment. And uh, I guess that's what you get for having been in business over 50 years down at Stockman's Bar.
1: The history of Missoula, the history of the University of Montana Athletic Department is on display at Stocks, too. Some of the old advertising posters, some of the old... Uh, Magazine and newspaper ads that some of the locals and regulars have produced throughout the years that they have hanging up in there are fun to look at. They have the jerseys of every single Grizz guy that's gone to the NFL signed on the wall. A favorite hangout for a great many of these former University of Montana men's basketball coaches. So head on down to Stockman's Bar in downtown Missoula on Front Street. $3 drafts from open to close. And as the famous saying at Stocks goes, liquor up front and poker in the rear.
0: I got to ask you, too, because at that time when you were in Sentinel High School for that year, I have a recollection of Luke Longley coming to town and being at the gym. Now, I'm not remembering if that was for a game or if it was something else. Do you have any recollection of Luke Longley coming to Missoula and being in the gym for a Montana game?
2: It seemed like he was in the fall, came in in the fall when we were having workouts and open gym, and he got to play with our guys. But that's all I. Re- I don't remember him actually. Maybe.
0: But he came to work out. I mean, who set up to get a seven foot one, like seventh overall pick Australian who played at New Mexico to Missoula to hang out and, you know, do some drills, run through some things with the guys?
2: Well, uh, Crisco was a friend of his. Mm. And so they had been either teammates or knew each other. And so he kind of knew the area, and he just happened to be. And he came in and, and worked out. It was it was only for a few weeks, and you know he's kind of getting ready for doing the next thing. He you know NBA. I think he was still playing.
0: Yeah, he definitely was still playing. He was playing for my Chicago Bulls. Don, it was the Ooh, greatest day of my life when I got connection. him to sign a sign a dollar bill for me. I was thrilled. <laughs>
1: Tell us about some of the guys on the teams when you were the head coach. I grew up in Missoula, and uh, that was when I first started going to Grizz games was the the late 90s. I remember going to Sentinel Gym. I remember when Dahlberg reopened and going to those games. Loved guys like Matt Williams and Dan Trammell and Brent Cummings, Travis Greenwald. I remember those teams vividly. What what do you remember just about the makeup and chemistry of those teams and some of the guys that you coached?
2: Well, it's funny. I got a text this morning from Ryan Slider. He said, remember this coach? And that's 15 years later, right? And it was Trammell getting the steal in the championship game uh, in Bozeman and just dunking it down, you know. And So I, I keep in touch a little bit with those guys. Shane Christensen, a little guard, recruiting him out of Las Vegas. You always thought you could recruit better than Shane. Shane always beat him, beat him down because he was such a great competitor and leader. I mean, when we ran the Grizzly two-mile, which they hated, Shane would always win it, set a record, and then he'd keep running until that 6'11 slug got finished. He would just keep running. He'd run until the last man was in. And he, he always did that. And the kids respected him for it. Now, did he score a lot of points? No, he scored a few, but he always guarded the toughest guy. He was a great playmaker. He played on two championship teams that I had, You know, the 2000 uh, championship Conference Championship and my last one. In 2002, without Shane at the helm, we wouldn't have won those championships. But we had, and you know, some of the guys. Matt Williams was a JUCO kid that I I grabbed up in the Sierra Mountains of the JUCO. A friend of mine turned me on to him, and I said, "Whoa!" And uh, he had scoring mentality, and he he not only was all conference two years in a row, you know. In Duke, he averaged double double his senior year, like 18 and 12. And they don't name him the MVP and we win the league. And he was a math major, academic All-American. Really? But he he was a good player. Mike Warhank played with him. He was a walk-on from Great Falls, Montana. Couldn't touch the rim, but he could <laughs> shoot it in. I mean, seriously. Uh, and it was like we were at Youngstown State, and we came from behind. and we We're going down the stretch, and I'm going to call this play, and both Mike... And and Matt, well, Mike had his master's. He was an I mean, smart kids. And they both said, you know, last time we ran this coach first half, uh, they cheated this and this. I said, okay, we'll counter it. Call it, counter it. And we did. Mike knocks it down. We win. From that point on, that was in December, the trust that occurred in in the timeouts between the players and the coaches was unique. We ended up countering every play that we ran because people watch film. They see our signs or whatever, and pretty soon we're just, you know, we're dicking them left and right, being smarter than every team that we played, not necessarily better in terms of physicality. Um, you know, in that group, the, the last year's group, uh, they were different. They uh, they were very athletic. I mean, Ryan Slider, Dan Trammell, you know, David Belt, the you know, best shooters in, in the league period. Uh, you know, uh, he had little Shane and Travis Greenwald in there, solid. I can remember the last play that we ran in regulation in the semifinal against Montana State there, and they had bopped us by 20. They were calling us the twenty twenty Grizz. I knew we could beat them. And I can remember calling the timeout with about, like, I suppose it was 19 seconds or something left in the call timeout, and they said, we're going to take one shot. We're going to win it in regulation, or we're going to OT. And I'm going to call this play, and Trammell wasn't going to be the go-to guy. He wasn't happy. And I said, Trammell, I said, you're the best rebounder in the building. Do you think Travis is going to get your miss? I want two shots at this. That made sense to him. So we ran the play, and then it was broken up. Trammell didn't move. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. And screened down, and I went, oh, no, what's going to happen now? And, you know, Shane dribbles the crease, pops it over to David Bell, best shooter in the league. I'll take that. In and dunk. All he thought about was that rebound, and I mean he grabbed it and just slammed it in the air. That was a fun group that that was a group that was very athletic that you know they're gonna guard it up and 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 they share I all those teams share there was no superstar mentality that I've got to get mine you know uh, and and that's how you win. There's
1: have so much I want to ask you about those teams because that memory you just described is one of the iconic memories of modern day Grizz basketball. no question about it. But going back to Matt Williams for a minute, I want to talk to you about him just through the lens of, of recruiting and how it's changed because, like you said, when you look at Matt Williams, the guy was everything you ever wanted. He was big, strong, smooth, and like you said, he was a great student. He's a productive guy. When you first saw him, what was the recruiting battle like for him or was there even one? And would a player like that have been able to come to the University of Montana now this day and age 20 years later with just how hyper-focused recruiting's become?
2: Well, you're right on both counts, but I always kind of laugh about that one. My good friend Steve Coach Emilio from Diablo Valley Community College, he fed me some guys down the stretch, and and I started when I was an assistant coach, and I'm up. I always visit him. I said, I'm going to go up and look at this guy by the name of Rufus. I can't remember Rufus' last name. He said, "You don't want him, Coach. You want the guy that he's playing against tomorrow night." I said, "Who's that?" Well, he's at Columbia Community College. Go up there and watch him. I go up there and and the team Porterville is playing Columbia, and they have about five D1 guys and uh, going here there and everywhere. And here, Matt Williams gets him about 38, and they win. And afterwards, I talked to him. and said, uh, "What are the chances uh, you getting a little visit to Montette?" There was nobody there. It's way up. It's like it's like in the Sierra Nevada. I mean, Yosemite. So there were no coaches there. So. They didn't see that, and so he visited, and he liked it, and he came. He wasn't a big jumper. I mean, he could dunk, but he was a scorer. I mean, he was go- you're going to have to foul him to stop him. And that was unique about him, and he's real smart, too. But that's kind of funny. The Trammel kid, you know, Coach Emilio, he said, I got Dan. You know, he didn't even play after high school. He only played a couple years, and I gray-shirted him, so he didn't didn't play his first year of junior college and he played the next two and and i'd had so much success with steve you know he calls him about every other month he trusted montana he knew his kids would be treated well that they'd graduate the whole nine yards and so he says dan I mean, you're gonna love him i mean he's such a super athlete when i introduced him the whole team and we were up on the stage and i introduced dan i'm turning to introduce the next guy and he does a backflip off of the stage onto the ground at six, six. I said, Dan, don't do that. I don't get hurt. <laughs> don't do that. So whenever we beat the cat, I said, "Okay, you can. You he, he could do like multiple backflips, like a gymnast." At six six, I mean, he is just a super athlete. That guy. You get your niche where you know where you go, where you find guys. The only thing that's changed since I've been involved in it, you got Instagram, and you've got. Facebook and you've got uh, you know you've got your phone you know we didn't have cell phones until maybe the last couple of years I was there it's changed that way the communication modes uh, you're able to connect with those kids more it was a one call a week deal when I was coaching uh, maybe that's what it should be I don't know so I remember recruiting is the, the lifeblood of your program we were fortunate and we had some really good kids uh, I like to give Steve coach Emilio a Uh, You know, I don't know if you know this gentleman. He's like the the dean of coaches in California. I mean, he's going to be a Hall of Fame guy. That trust factor between him and I, it wasn't like, well, Montana. No, he respected Montana's basketball tradition, and he sold his kids on coming to Montana. David Bell. David Bell was playing at Porterville. His buddy was coaching at Porterville and said, there's the guy you need. And we got him, and he was all league two years. Every one of those guys were all league players, you know, for two years. And so then you win. You have to have a, I I really believe you have to have a a Duco kid or two that's that's in your program that can play right now, and they're all, uh, you know, all league. And now the foreign kids are really more than when I was coaching. I mean, St. Mary's got 10 foreign kids on the team, half of those are from New Zealand and Australia, all the way Montana State has six of them. I don't know how many Montana has. So it's changed that way, too.
1: It is fascinating. These are great memories. Coach, you mentioned the year you guys won the regular season title and then lost in the semifinals of the tournament to Cal State Northridge. The next year, a little bit of a down year, but then you bounce back. And that 2001-2002 team that won the Big Sky Tournament, the thrilling game, like you said, when Dan Trammell had the put-back dunk to beat the Cats. and I actually think he did a backflip to celebrate that dunk as well. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and then you beat eastern washington in the finals to go to the NCAA tournament so in the big sky conference in a one-bid league so often the top seed or one of the top seeds is the team that has the inside track and especially when the schools used to host the tournament it was so hard to ever go on the road and win the tournament but you guys were able to do it and make it all the way to the NCAA tournament what do you remember about that run
2: you know, a little down the mouth about losing to Montana State on a Saturday night, and it wasn't very pleasant to be around. And I'm thinking about what we had to do because the tournament was the next week, and it was at Montana State. And and uh, thinking about uh, how, how are we going to overcome? How are I get my kids up and ready to go to that tournament? We can beat any team in that tournament. I truly believe that. Did we play well against Montana State at the time? No, we didn't, and I couldn't figure it out. So I called a guy. He was the son of a Lambier that played for the Detroit Pistons. And he was coaching somewhere in the Midwest, small school, and they had just finished their tournament. And, and he said, I don't know anything about offense, he said. He was talking about it, and he said, But I get on, I so said, You're going to play defense. Or you're... And I was listening to him, and it sounded, Yeah, that's pretty good. So I called him, and I said, So, coach, tell me about it more. And he did. And, and he said, So, you know, I I took a little pressure off our kids on the offensive end, but I was on their butts defensively and it seemed to loosen them. You know what? I said, That sounds like a great idea. And so I thought about it and I sat down with my seniors. I said, Those guys got there they get to come back next year. You guys this is it this is your deal. And you could win this tournament, but we've gotta we've gotta sell out on this. And I said, Do I make you nervous sometimes when we're or run an offense, or if you're going to miss a shot, and some of them raise their hand. I said, okay, then I'm going to stop doing that. This week, I'm going to take a little pressure off on the offensive end, but I'm going to be chewing your butts on the defensive end. If you're not down the stance and helping and this and that, you know, you're going to hear a lot from me. And so they bought in. It kind of freed up their minds, I think, a little bit. Maybe they were afraid to make a mistake against Montana State, we were still calling plays, so though. That's the funny part. And so I think that really helped us go in mentally prepared, and I knew we were going to win the first game. I really thought we'd beat Northern Arizona, and then it was going to be, hey, it's Montana State. They're playing semis. There it is. And we were down down early in that game, and the kids just hung in there, hung in there, never gave up. And all of a sudden they play not to lose, and they miss shots, and we make shots, and pretty soon it's the game then the rest is history. But that's kind of the the premise that we went about.
1: Mike Nugent, Gary Bryan, and Mike Bryan are all big supporters of the University of Montana men's basketball team and Grizz Athletics as a whole. Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate prides itself on providing the community of Western Montana with full-time real estate professionals who are here for you whenever you need them. Their reputation as the state's most knowledgeable and available real estate group has helped build unmatched trust in the Garden City and around the Treasure State. Gary Bryan of Berkshire Hathaway Montana Properties is a fierce supporter of Montana men's basketball and a proud supporter of Montana Grizzlies athletics across the board. Gary has been selling commercial and residential real estate in Missoula for more than 25 years. He has historical knowledge that matters and when you pair that with his current marketing strategies, high-end photography and video, Gary and his team understand that an experience counts. Give Gary Bryan and the Bryan team a call today 406-880-4141 Mike Nugent, Mike Bryan, and Gary Bryan all understand the importance of history when it comes to the University of Montana particularly when it comes to the men's basketball program and so Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate is proud to present to you Grizz Great's The Coaching Tree. At Berkshire Hathaway they understand that buying and selling are huge decisions and they always have your best interests in mind so give them a call. Berkshire Hathaway your local real estate experts.
0: You know, Don, you had, of course, mentioned about hiring Wayne Tinkle and, and Larry Krasoviak, And on one hand, maybe it seems obvious because they were, you know, such good players at the university, and Wayne even playing for you while you were an assistant coach. But you know, at the point that you got to make that decision, you say, you know, you went to find those guys. What was it about them? As players, what you knew of them that you said, "Hey, this would be a great fit. We'd love to have those guys on," because of course, then they go on to be part of of this tree and very successful, both at the University of Montana and afterwards as well.
2: As you watch him, like Larry from afar, his work ethic, his determination, his reputation—he brings credibility to your program immediately. He will interact with those kids; are going to look up at him, and he's—he was in the NBA, and he never never let me down in any respect that way. And the same with Wayne. They're both smart guys, and, and they're big guys, but they're, they're smart guys. I think Wayne is a great communicator, one of his strengths. And he, he really listens, and he still does that. He, he's a guy that just, you know, you can call him anytime he'll call you back. I knew who they were. I trusted who they were as people. And I knew that they'd had a background, not only successfully at Montana, but professionally, like Wayne, d- just, didn't quite make the NBA, but he he played for X amount of years, made a lot of money playing in Spain and, and Europe. So they bring that credibility. I, I can't think of who else I would rather hire than those two.
1: A couple guys that you recruited that played either sparingly or not at all for you, because uh, then your tenure ended, David Bell and Kevin Criswell. I want to ask you about Criswell, because Criswell is a guy that came out of a Class A high school in Colstrip and there was a lot of speculation on whether he could be able to hang at the Division One level or not, but his production in high school was insane. He averaged almost 40 points per game. What gave you the faith in him that you knew he could become a great player, and then what was that like watching him from afar as he became one of the all-time leading scorers in the history of the school?
2: It's funny because Todd Schmeltz, you know, Criswell, would come to our camp every summer, always wanted to be a grist and I liked his competitiveness. I liked how he finished around the basket. But he was streaky. I just didn't see him shooting the ball very well. And I'm kind of hum-ho a little bit. And then, you know, Schmoutzi, we had one break. One break. One weekend. And uh, he just died for those weekend off, right? He said, Coach, you you got to go up there. Carroll's going to – he didn't have any other Division One offers. Carroll is going to offer him a full ride. And I, 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 think, I know he's good enough, Coach. I said, I, I think he is, too. Think he is too. Okay, so I drove all the way to Coal Strip and did the in-home, but I did not have a scholarship for him. The scholarship he would have gotten was going to David Bell, JUCO, coming in the first year of the next year, and he's all-league and he starts for us. I mean, it's not like you know you don't know if Kevin can play coming out of high school. And so I did the in-home, and I I asked the parents. I said, if you can afford to walk him out for one year. I will sign him in the fall. He'll be my first signee for the next year this fall. He'll have a scholarship in his hand. I'm not asking you to, to prove it to me. I'm telling you right now, you proved it as a high school player. And so they bought in. I signed him in the fall, and he was already on board. But he, he was a kid that got hurt, so we didn't know I ever really got to coach him. He was on sideline. He was, he was hurt, and uh, so he redshirted. Him. And, and then the next year, I'm done but we're good friends to this day. Kevin was so tough. As I watched him play, I mean, he was a finisher around the basket and competitive as hell, good defender. So it's interesting how that came about. No one else had offered him a D1 scholarship than us. And that was a walk-on one year. The walk-ons are so important since Title IX came into effect. We used to have 15 full rides at just like the women, and then now we have 13. That, that happened back in the 80s late 80s or early 90s, probably early 90s. So you have to have those walk You need 15 kids for practice purposes and to build your program. And so you're looking, and they're always going to be Montana guys because they don't have the out-of-state fees that you have to pay. And, and so those are important people. In, he was one of those. Mike Warhank walked on for two years, and then he started for two, and all league his senior year for me. I mean, it all worked out. you got to hang in there. It's a different journey. But that was kind of Kevin's journey. And he got to play. I recruited him. He had to play for Kennedy for two, and then he played for Crisco and you know and Takes when they were on board, and he was you know part of their championships.
0: Well, Coach, when you finished up in two thousand two, and I know that it didn't end the way that you wanted it to at the end, in terms of of your tenure as the head coach, but after the fact, now looking back, and especially seeing a couple of guys that you brought on be as successful as they were, and the fact that you did go to a tournament, which not every coach can say that they did that at the University of Montana. When you look back, just kind of at the whole thing, what's your long view on the University of Montana men's basketball program and sort of your place in it?
2: We've talked a lot about the progression, the guys who coached there. What a wonderful opportunity. If, if If I knew... My first year that my last year was going to be like it was, I'd still sign on. there's all the experiences that you get to be a part of as a coach, be it an assistant, the championships you're involved in. I've got more, you know, about six rings. I got all this stuff, you know, I don't wear them. But I'm just saying because of the coaches and the teams we had and being a part of it, even the four years that I was there, you try to get through the Sentinel thing and that interim label, and the, and you win the championship. They pick you seventh, and you win the championship. And then the last season when we, we won the tournament championship, people weren't giving us a chance to do those things. But that's why you line up and do it. I look back, all the players, I'm mean, like, I get the text today from Ryan Slider or Shane Christensen when he's with the Harlem Globetrotters. He probably calls me two or three times a year. He comes to Missoula. We have dinner, just him and I. I can still tell those stories with such a a feeling of love for those guys. It's
1: such a rare thing to go to the NCAA tournament and then lose your job and not to open old wounds too much. But like you said, it seems like it's come full circle for you with all the things you do remember and all the good things and the players and all that stuff. So what was that process like for you, dealing with the shock of the decision but then reinventing yourself and coming around on the other side and having great pride and being a part of what has been the history of the University of Montana men's basketball program?
2: The thing is, with that, I think it was Palm Sunday, and I was going to church, like three weeks after the season, and you see Hogan's kick-up over in the driveway of the president's house, which is across the street from the church. And I thought, I wonder if I should be in that meeting. And, you know, joking. And then when I, I get a phone call later that afternoon to come in, I said, well, I suppose he wants to visit. Figure out what we're doing for next year and how we're going to, you know, this, that, or the other. And that's, you know, he goes, well, Don, we're thinking about going another direction. I said, what direction would that be? Well, we want to be like Gonzaga. And I said, who doesn't? I said, drop your football program. Give me the money that Gonzaga has. (laughs) You know, that's exactly what I told him, you know, flippantly, but, you know, and and, uh, I said, you know, you're doing this for all the wrong reasons. And I said, this will cost you your job in the end. And he said, you you might be right. Well, he was gone two years later for other reasons, but some of that, we had the people's support. You know, I wasn't his guy. He wanted to bring Kennedy on, who had gotten fired at DePaul. I I think that's where he was at. You know, he hadn't had a winning season for three years, and he came here and had two of the worst we've ever had, you know, uh, and, and that didn't end well either one of them they both end up leaving after that so i'm still a part of it from afar and i've had a great experience those 15 years i was involved in it you know always supported the grizzlies i have you know an attorney told me you know he said he was on his deathbed and he's a good friend and and they were wanting me to you know press maybe for a lawsuit because i hadn't been evaluated i hadn't been you know there was no parameters at all set forth and didn't see it coming. And he said, Don, I, I know you have a son and he said, Here and he said, Do you do you want to live in the community? I think. Yep, I do. And he said, well, I just let that lawsuit just lie where it's at, you know? And and so I did. I I didn't I didn't press it any further. But, you know, it could have been a wrongful discharge very easily when you hadn't had an evaluation for, for two or three years. And, no warning and no, nothing before the season started that you have to do this or that. You know, there's things that they could have handled differently. Very important to have a good AD that's loyal to you and, and it gives you an opportunity to. But you know, like Joe Cravens uh, was. The, I love Joe. I don't know if you remember him from Weber State.
1: Oh yeah, he oh, called. He was, called the cat game last night at Utah State. Actually, so listen well, to him. Well, I didn't last see him, night.
2: and I kept thinking I'm listening. I'm watching it, and I that sounds like Joe. He's got that little Southern accent, and he's a funny guy. And I I remember him calling me and saying, Holster, you're the only guy in the the league that's won two championships in four years. This is bull. He said, I just cannot believe it. I said, yeah, but what are you going to do? You know, I could have gone to a couple places, and I could have gotten on with Blaine one time when he was in Old Dominion. He had an opening and." I, it just didn't, you know, you're leaving your, your son who you're trying to raise. And now he's out of high school, going to prep school, wants to be a D1 guy, and I'm going to assist him in every way to, to achieve his dreams. So it's all good. Was it hard at first to not be coaching? And what did you
1: kind of use as an avenue to define
2: solace? <clears throat> I don't know. I stepped back. Probably you, you take care of yourself a little differently. Coaching stuff on you. You know, work out a little more, do a little more hiking and biking and, you know, take care of your kids, that kind of thing. Figure out what, what how are you going to be a part of a society that has nothing to do with coaching. It's hard. When I get a chance to talk coaching, I, I love it. I mean, it's always been there. I like to be one of these old volunteers that sits on the end of the bench and once in a while visits with the head coach. And in practice, that would be a fun job. Somebody asked me this morning, why don't you coach her? Our girls, now you're going to be done here, you can coach our girls. I said, I'll do that. They're uh, they're like fifth graders, just for fun. Those juices are still there, but you just, you just got to move forward. You just got to, you know, like I say, reinvent yourself and, and move forward and, and take it as an experience. You have a lot of different experiences in life and say that that was good, even if it turned out somewhat bad at that point in time. I had way more good experiences than I had one little bad experience on the Palm Sunday.
0: We want to end on a little bit of a sour note because we want to hear Ooh. what you think about Montana State.
2: <laughs> what I think about what? Montana State. Well, right now,
0: well, I in- think they got a hell of a coach. <laughs> <laughs> Looked pretty good last well, night, didn't they?
2: Well, Danny, you know, doggone it he was part of the recruiting process between him and Matt Seidensticker. I had a chance to go over and see Danny and visit with him this summer. He's been kind of one of those special people in my life off and on while he was coaching. He said, my mom has a picture of you and me when I was at Northridge, you know, and uh, I laughed at that. And so he brings great energy to that program. He's trying to change the culture there and he's doing a good job of it and he's doing it the right way. He asked me to come to practice afterwards. He said, what would you think? And he sincerely is asking, and I said, you're doing great. I mean, I did ask the one assistant about their pick and roll deal, but he's a young coach who's been away from Montana doing different things in basketball, bringing that back to Montana. And when I was there and I've been doing a, a couple of his practices, he, his kids always come up after practice. Each one of them shake your hand. And their are coaches. He's teaching them some values about, you know, being respectful and having good manners and laying it on the line. And they were playing their hearts out last night. That's the And they shared. The three kid's an all-league player. I don't see any other all-league players on their team. You usually need two to, to make a run. And he's real good. But the other kids are just trying to find their way, but they're all sharing and playing hard. And it's hard. Utah State, I told him that's going to be a tough opener. Because not many people win there. Nobody wants to go there and play. So I I really like what he's doing, what he brings to Montana State basketball. So uh, can he beat the Grizzlies? I don't know. I mean, the Grizzlies have lost two extremely good guards. Those guys are as as good as we've ever had. They're hard to replace, so I don't know how that's all going to work out. But I think Montana State will win their shit. They'll they'll maybe go 500 or better, maybe. I, I don't know how the rest of the league is.
1: Definitely the most different answer we've gotten from that. Everybody else is like, oh, the cats. Oh. <laughs> but you have a close connection with the cats, and that's great. I think it's awesome that you've stayed involved in basketball and that you've mentored guys. I like Coach Martin well, along Dad. the way. You know, he's,
2: he's like a prodigal son. I think, he, I think he might even have dated my daughter once or
0: twice. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, Don, we certainly appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being with us on, on this podcast, and we wish you all the best, okay?
2: Hey, fellas, thank you. You guys are well prepared. You asked a lot of great questions that I would not give credit to. A lot of guys wouldn't even know, would have done their homework or known anything about it.
0: Well, what an interesting and poignant conversation with Coach Holtz. We certainly appreciate his candor and time to be with us on that. And I think most of the listeners now, Coulter, appreciate why we felt this was maybe one of the more intriguing episodes we've done in this podcast so far.
1: Informative, to say the least. I think there was a lot of details that I myself didn't know in terms of my own personal history with this thing, I mean, Don Holst was the head coach of the Montana Men's Basketball Program when I first started really liking Grizz basketball, first started going to Grizz basketball. I mean, I went to Blaine Taylor's cage camps as a little kid, but first started really regularly attending when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. And Don Holst, some of his players, guys like Matt Williams, Ryan Slider, Dan Tremble, those guys were like my heroes when I was a, a kid. And right. So it was cool catching up with Coach Holst, and I'm glad he's back on his feet. I'm glad he's still a Missoulian. And I'm glad that he's found a sense of peace in his spot amongst this great coaching tree.
0: No doubt. We appreciate all of you for uh, checking this out and listening along with us. Make sure you listen to the bonus episodes as well. And episode six, coming up with the man who replaced Don Holst, Pat Kennedy, the one man who he's in the tree in virtue of having been a head coach of the University of Montana, but not one of what you might call the family of guys. And his uh, short stint, two years is probably the most anomalous two seasons of Grizz basketball from a coaching standpoint. And yet Pat Kennedy, very generous with his time as well. Tremendous resume. You can't believe all the places and teams and schools and guys that Pat Kennedy coached over the years. And it's so interesting for a guy with the track record that he had. You come to a place like the University of Montana and the fit just isn't quite right. And particularly the transition from Holst into Pat Kennedy, again, probably the most controversial one in the lineage of coaches at the University of Montana to this point. But certainly an interesting episode. And I think to hear it from Pat Kennedy's perspective, very worthwhile as well. That is episode six.
3: Who do businesses throughout the Pacific Northwest turn to for innovative internet and voice solutions? Blackfoot, our cybersecurity, network uptime, ergo, and SD-WAN solutions ensure your organization is online all the time. Learn how Blackfoot can enable your business to move forward. Call 406-541-5000 or visit goblackfoot.com slash grizzgreats. Blackfoot, connect to more.